everybody. It's Monday, June 26th. It's been a very eventful weekend. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news, read between the lines so you don't have to. Uh, Jill, I should begin by asking how your mercenary, how your Wagner mercenary force is doing. <laughs> Mosh, it was a tumultuous weekend uh, for the Wagners. I should say I got a question on the Instagram account because I was mentioning the coup, the coup by Wagner. And people are like, are you referring to the fact that she did the podcast solo on Friday? <laughs> I'm uh, coming for you, Different Mosh. coup. Different coup. <laughs> We're marching to Dumbo. I've got my team. <laughs> this is what happens when you go away for a, a baby moon. But but in all seriousness, uh, Jill, we quickly evolved as an organization here from trying to figure out how submersibles work in the North Atlantic to uh, starting to figure out what's happening inside the Kremlin between a mercenary force and Vladimir Putin. Look, I always know when stories resonate when people ask me about them outside of work. And I was at a pool party on Saturday and a couple of the dads were like, what's going on with that coup in Russia? And that's when that's when you know that a story has actually, you know, kind of resonated with people. So I think it's great that we've been on top of it. It's the Long Island Pool Party Index. <laughs> yes. If it hits an eight at the Pool Party Index, <laughs> eight out of 10 people in the drink line asking about it, you know, it's a big deal. <laughs> All right, so let's get to it. The 36-hour attempted armed rebellion in Russia by a private mercenary group led by Putin's former caterer gets within 125 miles of Moscow and then turns around. We'll tell you all about the latest in this remarkable drama. Moshe, if somebody wrote this for an HBO show, I think that other writers would say, nah, this is too crazy. This has jumped the shark. The details <laughs> are uh, incredible here, and we'll try to break it all down for you. Federal indictment? What federal indictment? A new poll finds that Donald Trump's lead amongst Republican voters has actually grown since he was federally charged in relation to those classified documents. Here we go again. A train carrying potential contaminants has derailed, this time in the Yellowstone River in Montana. The U.S. has launched prosecutions of Chinese companies on charges of trafficking fentanyl ingredients. And the investigation continues into what went wrong in the Titanic submersible with some texts showing that OceanGate's CEO dismissed some safety concerns. First, it was golf. Now, the Saudi government could be getting into tennis. Plus, Moshe is on this day in history. Jill, you might assume by now that the UPC symbol was always around, but it wasn't. We have the history of that and the beginning of the Harry Potter series today. Here, I thought you were going to break out into some Elvis. Oh, we also have a little Elvis Presley coming <laughs> Okay, let's start with the rebellion in Russia that played out online and on TV over the weekend. What appears to be the biggest threat to Vladimir Putin's power in two decades, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner private military company, led a mutiny against the Russian government Friday and Saturday. Prigozhin is a longtime ally of Putin, who actually started as his caterer years ago, before eventually going on to build this mercenary group and lead tens of thousands of fighters. His group has done some of the most vicious fighting around the world on behalf of Russia, most recently in Ukraine. And this uprising played out with dizzying speed. Prigozhin's forces moved from their camps in Ukraine into Russia on Friday and took over a key Russian military command in the southern city of Rostov before advancing toward Moscow. 
And then just as suddenly the advance was called off on Saturday and the Wagner troops returned to Ukraine while Prigozhin would move to neighboring Belarus. The Kremlin now says that it will not prosecute Prigozhin or the armed members of the Wagner group. All right, quickly, who is this guy Prigozhin? He is an ex-con who became a hot dog salesman before becoming a caterer for Kremlin events. And eventually he became part of Putin's inner circle. As we mentioned, he created this mercenary force that helped Russian interests across the globe. And most recently, he had become increasingly disenchanted with Russian military leadership, specifically a lack of resources when it came to their fighting in Ukraine, where Wagner has been on the front lines and also achieved some of Russia's biggest victories. Late last week, Prigozhin said that the Wagner Group would not comply with an order that would require it to sign a formal contract with Russia's defense ministry, forcing the private force to effectively be under complete Russian government control. Prigozhin then released a video questioning the entire war, calling it a racket perpetrated by the elites around Putin. He questioned the rationale for the war and called for the removal of top Russian military leaders. And then he accused the Russians of launching a strike on his forces and said that in response, he would invade Russia and head to Moscow. And then he started to do it. Prigozhin began his move inside Russia. And at that point, Putin came out and announced that Prigozhin was a traitor and would face retribution, mobilizing Russian troops to defend the Russian capital against the Wagner group. So again, a furious Putin appears on television on Saturday, issuing a nationwide call for unity in the face of a mutinous strike that he compared to the Russian Revolution of 1917. And then just hours later, in an even more surprising turn of events, Alexander Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, who is a very close ally of Putin, said that he had secured an agreement that included Prigozhin halting his forces advance and Prigozhin was allowed to flee to Belarus without facing mutiny charges. Most did I cover? <laughs> did I cover the main points here? Uh, hot dog check, cater check, <laughs> uh, Wagner mercenary force check, uh, insurrection check, and then 120 miles from Moscow, he turns it all around and gets an agreement to go live safely in a neighboring country. Jill, even uh, longtime Russia watchers were shocked at what was unfolding, and you know there were equal schools of thought saying, "Well, did Putin concoct this entire thing? Like this seems too crazy to be real." At the same time you are dealing with a broken country that's uh, beleaguered here that has been, uh, you know, Putin's been fighting this war that hasn't gone as he wanted it to. And he has some real interesting people around him, including Prigozhin. It's unclear as we watch what took place and as we record this, what Prigozhin's ultimate aim was. You know, was he actually trying to take over power? Was he just trying to get more influence with Putin? Was he trying to get revenge on the military leadership? Was he trying to embarrass Putin to get more funds? I mean, there's a whole variety of theories here as to what was going on. You know, you saw the images over the weekend, and, you know, clearly it did not appear to be some sort of concocted theater because you literally had the Russians digging anti-tank ditches. Uh, don't forget Prigozhin as he made this march to Moscow, uh, killed at least 13 Russian soldiers, shot down multiple helicopters, a Russian plane. And by the way, that's not going to be forgotten anytime soon by the Russian Air Force. 
And you had Putin go on TV and effectively have to admit that, you know, a military base and part of his country was being taken over by this guy, Prigozhin. So, you know, those are the facts we know so far as uh, details continue to eke out here, details that we can obtain, because remember, we are dealing with Russia where there's no independent media. And so you're dealing with Putin's case, state media, and then Prigozhin, the cater turned mercenary leader, who also is a compulsive liar. Either way, it does appear that the, for the first time in 20 years, you really saw some weakness internally in Russia for Putin. And the ramifications there will be interesting. You know, will others now say, oh, this country is not as strong as I thought it was. And will this open the door to more attempts on power uh, on Putin? Historians who look back at Russian history here will say in the late 80s and 90s, you did see multiple attempts on the Soviet Union uh, before the complete fall of the Soviet Union. So it might be way too early to start to make those comparisons, but certainly historians, as they look back at Russian history, will point out that there are some parallels here. Jill, we also learned over the weekend that Western intel officials, including in the U.S., say they saw this coming, uh, especially with Prigozhin being so outspoken, so increasingly upset in recent weeks. He saw money from the Russian government going to other mercenary groups set up by other Russian companies, you know, for Prigozhin and the Wagner Group. They did the majority of the fighting in in Ukraine. They claimed 20,000 dead in recent fighting. They got some of the biggest victories, but they were not getting the support from Putin. He was then going after the top generals. Putin was then helping Prigozhin, but then messing with him and promoting generals who were aligned with Prigozhin's arch nemesis. So this really built up over time. And clearly, you know, Prigozhin blew a fuse and said, I'm going to go after you. Again, unclear what his ultimate strategy was, because does he have enough Russian elites, given that he criticizes them? Unclear. Could he have actually taken Moscow? unlikely. And so it appears they both tried to save some face here, utilizing Lukashenko, the dictator from Belarus. I know there's a lot of characters to follow here, but this sort of speaks to the complexity of what's happening in the region. Jill, and one of the things that you know a lot of people are asking is, what does this mean for the war in Ukraine? Zelensky was certainly watching this saying, this is a welcome distraction. Let's see how much progress we can make while the Russian military, the Wagner group are distracted with this internal stuff. It appears they they did make an announcement over the weekend that they were able to win back some territory. But long term here, the people watching this say, you know, the Russians aren't changing their position. The war continues and it will continue to be a, a, a very slow slog happening in Ukraine. Moshe, although I did think that it was notable in terms of the impact that this could have on the war in Ukraine. And I think I think it's important that we don't overestimate what this means in terms of the fighting there. The war is is far from over. Richard Engel, who is NBC's chief foreign affairs correspondent, he had reported uh, when asked about the Russians fighting among themselves, a senior Ukrainian official told me, quote, it is too good to be true. Yeah, for the most part, you didn't see many Russian troops move from Ukraine into Russia. You did see that whole group of Wagner soldiers follow Prigozhin into Russia. But for the most part, you know, there is that 600 mile battle line um, across Ukraine and the Russian soldiers are still, you know, full speed ahead trying to take over Ukraine. And while this might be a distraction shown for Putin and the military leaders, uh, it does not appear that there's a this is a huge game changer. Uh, for the Ukrainians. All right, let's talk a bit more, though, about the Wagner Group, spelled Wagner, W-A-G-N-E-R. Again, we should know, Jill, no, you have no association with them. <laughs> Zero. Um, a lot of people, though, have not heard of this group before. Wagner mercenary soldiers have been around for about a decade, hired to support several African and Arab governments, including Libya, Sudan, Syria, Mozambique, um, in combat operations against rebel groups and vice versa. 
So Wagner acts as a security service for vulnerable Putin-friendly dictators, and they've reportedly engaged in rape, torture, and murder, and have been accused of human rights violations. Wagner notably also owns the internet research agency, the IRA. It is an online troll farm that tries to manipulate elections through social media, including the 2016 election here in the United States. Mueller's report said that the campaign evolved from a generalized program designed in 2014 and 2015 to undermine the U.S. electoral system to a targeted operation that by early 2016 favored candidate Trump and disparaged uh, candidate Hillary Clinton. If you're to take anything away from the Wagner Group, they basically sow chaos globally, including here in the U.S. Uh, there's actually, I posted on Instagram, the FBI wanted sheet for Prigozhin. He's wanted by the FBI for election interference, using his social media arm to manipulate people, sow chaos. And so they have the security fighting services arm. They have the disinformation business, the information warfare business. They also, Jill, make a whole lot of money exploiting natural resources in Africa. They'll often make deals where they'll fight on behalf of a dictator or rebel group and then get access to natural resources as payment. Now, Wagner is officially independent. It's Prigozhin's, uh, you know, military arm. And by the way, he wouldn't even admit it existed until very recently. It's effectively been this proxy force for Russia. And there are some similarities. You know, if you've heard of Blackwater in the U.S., the private security firm that the U.S. military used in Iraq and Afghanistan to do some dirty work. But effectively, it's that, but on steroids. But Wagner does not officially report to the Russian government. They're independent. And that became the issue here uh, as the Russian military was saying, we want to have direct control over the Wagner troops, Prigozhin protested, and that's part of the reason you saw what unfolded over the weekend. And I believe it was on the Mo News Instagram feed that I saw that Wagner itself is named after the composer favored by Nazis. That That's how it got its name. Yeah, Prigozhin apparently uh, looks up to Hitler, uh, likes some of the things Nazis have done. So because of the way that Wagner, the composer, inspired the Nazis, that was one of the reasons he named his group after Wagner. Um, at least that's how the story goes. So a lot of complexity here, as you've heard. Uh, there'll be a lot that unfolds here. Keep in mind, Prigozhin, as of late Sunday, still hasn't been heard from. Uh, his people say he doesn't have cell phone reception on his way to Belarus. You know, many of you are writing in being like, how long does he have to live? You know, Putin has a long memory here. Uh, this was embarrassing for him. They seem to have struck some sort of compromise. It's unclear what the role of the Wagner Group will be in future fighting in Ukraine, what Prigozhin's role will be, whether Putin will you know, be honest about not prosecuting him, not pursuing him. And Prigozhin, for his part, you know, a billionaire who's been at the height of his power, who you know, was able to show that he was able to get within 120 miles of Moscow, and Jill, we should note, you know, saw you know, thousands of Russians come out to celebrate um, his group. He certainly has fans um, out there in Russia, what his goals are, what he's up to next. So uh, this story is not over. We saw some remarkable images over the weekend, uh, and we'll stay on top of this uh, as this story unfolds. All right, time now for the speed read. Let's start with 2024 politics from NBC News. Former President Trump has expanded his lead over Florida Governor DeSantis and the rest of the Republican presidential field since Trump's latest indictment on federal criminal charges. This is according to a new national poll from NBC News. 
In April, Trump led DeSantis 46 to 31. Now he leads him 51 to 22. It comes as a few other non-Trump candidates appear to have won over some voters. Mike Pence is up to 7%. Nikki Haley is at 4%. And Chris Christie getting into the race with 5%. And while about half of Republicans want another four years of Trump, the survey finds that half of all Republican primary voters say that they would consider another leader, which suggests a potential opening for a rival to capture the GOP nomination. So, Jill, when it's Trump uh, against the nearly dozen other candidates, he has a 30-point lead over DeSantis and the rest are in single digits. When they ask the question, you know, Trump versus just one other candidate, and in this case, a Trump versus DeSantis race, Trump gets 60% and DeSantis gets 36%, showing he continues to have that dominating lead, even if it's one against one, especially if that other one is DeSantis, at least as of right now in June of 2023. Back to the latest indictment, 77% of Republican primary voters, three out of four, say that the newest federal charges against Trump in the classified documents case give them either minor concerns or no real concerns at all. By the way, that no real concerns at all is six out of 10 Republicans. So at least as of now, with Republican primaries beginning in just about six months, about seven months here, Trump does not appear to be giving people reservations, at least when it comes to those indictments. The trouble, though, for Trump may come in a general election, because then when they asked all Americans, people who would be voting in next November, a majority of all registered voters do have concerns about Trump after his indictment, including 55 percent of independent voters. And we know those independent voters have really made the difference now several election cycles. So in an overall poll of Trump versus Biden, Biden right now leads by four points. We should note the poll also goes into details about concerns Americans have about both Trump and Biden, especially when it comes to their age and mental competence. Uh, Biden more than Trump here when it comes to concerns, but a majority of voters are concerned about both men and their mental competence to have another four years in office. Jill, I got some interesting reactions um, online to this, you know, people saying, you know, I, I find this hard to believe. I know a lot of Republicans. I'm a Republican and I'm over him. Uh, but we should say this NBC poll is in line with the polls we're seeing from Fox News, from conservative organizations, um, other mainstream media organizations, which show that Trump does continue to have this hold on his party. Uh, as of now, remember, seven months is a lifetime in politics. But this was pretty notable because this really gave Americans more than a week here to digest just uh, the latest headlines from that indictment before asking them how they felt. Jill, as we begin this week, we should mention over the weekend marked one year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Uh, You saw Kamala Harris, others having events uh, this weekend talking about the issue. It's also being discussed in the Republican primary. Notably, Trump over the weekend spoke to social conservatives and told that crowd over the weekend that there is a role for further federal government involvement when it comes to abortion bans. Now, Trump was not specific, but it does come as he's been facing pressure from Mike Pence and others in the Republican primary to call for a national abortion ban at 15 weeks. That's something that Pence is calling for, other Republicans are calling for. Uh, Remember, Trump last year when the midterms took place, and uh, you saw the Democrats keep and expand their lead in the Senate, uh, not take the House majority like they thought they would. Trump and other Republicans did blame abortion as one of the reasons. And that has led to some criticisms within the pro-life movement, being like, Trump, are you a true ally? At the same time, Trump does like to take credit for the fact that he was able to appoint three conservative Supreme Court justices and the three justices that helped overturn Roe v. Wade. 
And a quick heads up that it is going to be a big week for court decisions uh, this week. Just something to look out for. We'll be getting a decision on things like affirmative action and student loans. Yeah, look out Tuesday morning, starting at about 10 a.m. Eastern time, everybody, uh, for some of the biggest decisions of the cycle. All right. From the Associated Press, authorities on Sunday were testing the water quality along a stretch of the Yellowstone River where mangled train cars carrying hazardous materials remained after crashing into the waterway following a bridge collapse. Seven train cars carrying hot asphalt and molten sulfur fell into the rushing river on Saturday, about 40 miles west of Billings, Montana. The area is in a sparsely populated section of the Yellowstone River Valley, surrounded by ranch and farmland. Water testing started Saturday. It will continue as crews work to remove the cars. State officials are working with the EPA on the cleanup, removal, and restoration efforts. So the amount of cargo that spilled into the river and the danger it poses to those who rely on the river for drinking and irrigation is still not known here in Montana, Jill. Hot asphalt and molten sulfur apparently harden and solidify quickly when mixed with water. And the modeling they have so far suggests that the substances are not likely to move very far downstream. You have state authorities in Montana and the feds now who are working to uh, test the water, assess further damage. Crews are still trying to figure out the best way to remove the train cars since the crash was so extensive and there was a lot of damage to the car. Jill, a few people were asking over the weekend, is it me or are there are more of these train derailments lately? And we should note, actually, when we look at the numbers, if you look at the last 20 years, train derailments have actually decreased in the U.S., but we still run at about 1,100 to 1,200 a year, meaning there are approximately three to four train derailments a day in America. Which is pretty crazy. I think one of the things that has led to more attention here is the issue in East Palestine, you know, because of how notable that was. So it really started to lead people to pay attention to these more. And we do try to make a point here to let you know about the ones that uh, do lead to some concern when it comes to environmental issues. From the Financial Times, U.S. federal prosecutors have filed the first indictments against Chinese companies and nationals for allegedly trafficking chemicals used to produce fentanyl into the United States. The Department of Justice announced charges on Friday against four China-based companies and eight Chinese nationals, two of whom have been arrested. The charges are for knowingly manufacturing, marketing, selling and supplying precursor chemicals for the production of fentanyl. In the past, fentanyl was shipped directly to the U.S. from China. That has shifted, though, and Mexican cartels now largely control supply, importing the precursor chemicals used to make the drug from China and then shipping the finished product across the border. Jill, we mentioned this recently. It did come up in the meetings between U.S. Secretary of State Blinken and Chinese leaders earlier this month in China. The Chinese in principle said they're willing to work with the U.S. on this issue, though a Chinese embassy spokesperson on Friday night following the indictment condemned it, saying it was a well-planned entrapment operation. It creates more obstacles for U.S.-China counter-narcotics cooperation. And a Chinese official said it was the U.S. attempting to shift the blame for its own drug problems in this country. Now, when it comes to fentanyl, curbing the flow of it across the southern border has become a huge priority for the Biden administration. On Thursday, it announced it was extending its campaign to try to cut off drug shipments, arrest smugglers. Lawmakers from both parties, Republicans and Democrats, have urged action as the U.S. overdose death toll continues to exceed 100,000 Americans a year. Jill, more people are dying from fentanyl than car accidents uh, and a whole variety of other causes. 
some background here on this whole fentanyl market. Part of the issue here was the U.S. government crackdown on opioids as we were dealing with the opioid crisis over the last decade. Millions of Americans who had become addicted to prescription pills suddenly found them difficult or impossible to get. So then you had the Mexican cartels here step in to fill the vacuum. And some of the ingredients they're getting to fill the vacuum for fentanyl manufacturing are coming from China. We should note, by the way, that given the chaos uh, this wreaks here on Americans, killing Americans, hurting the economy, this sort of does jive with Chinese foreign policy overall. And so you can see why the Chinese haven't cracked down here as much as the American government would like them to. From ABC News, days after debris from the submersible was discovered, we are now getting a sense of the monetary cost of the search and rescue. A defense budget expert estimates that once the U.S. military participation concludes, the cost for the search and rescue mission of the five passengers on board the Titan submersible will cost the U.S. around $1.5 million. A senior advisor with the Center for Strategic and International Studies came up with that estimate based on flights, cross-referencing the U.S. Department of Defense cost numbers, Coast Guard costs, and flying hour costs. He said some costs have already been set aside in various budgets with resources simply diverted to the site. They emphasize that it is strictly a well-informed guess A spokesperson for the Coast Guard would not give an estimate of costs so far, saying, quote, we cannot attribute a monetary value to search and rescue cases as the Coast Guard does not associate costs with saving a life. It comes as the U.S. Coast Guard and Canadian authorities continue their investigation into the cause of the implosion. Yeah, Jill, last week, cost was a big question. uh, And we mentioned to folks that, you know, the Coast Guard every year does tons of rescues, uh, never bills anyone for the rescue, whether you're surfing and caught up in a storm or your sailboat, uh, you know, runs aground somewhere or, you know, you go missing somewhere within U.S. coastal waters. Then in many cases, you know, the Coast Guard and DOD are already doing what they're doing. They're just their mission changes based on the need. And we're learning all this, Jill, as we continue to get new details on Stockton Rush, the CEO, the company, OceanGate, and how they did what they did. Over the weekend, ABC News was talking to a Las Vegas father and son who showed their correspondence with the OceanGate CEO, uh, who they say was pressuring them for months into taking two seats on the now failed mission to the Titanic. And they showed their text messages to ABC News, Rush texting back to them. There's obviously a risk, but it's way safer than flying in a helicopter or even scuba diving. One of the men here, a financer named Jay Bloom, tells ABC News that anyone who disagreed with Rush, he just felt it was a differing opinion. His predisposition was that it was totally safe to go inside the submersible, noting that Rush apparently flew out to Las Vegas in a home-built plane to convince him to attend the voyage, saying, you know, this plane is safe, my submersible is safe. We also learned over the weekend that Mr. Beast, you might recognize him, of YouTube fame, was apparently also invited onto this sub. Jill, the bottom line here is we continue to hear uh, from folks who were invited onto this sub and new stories uh, from the industry writ large about questions about OceanGate, questions about Stockton Rush. Uh, You might have seen some of the viral clips over the weekend of James Cameron, who's an investor in a separate submersible company called Triton. And he says that many in the industry for years were telling Rush and OceanGate that their questionable design 
was going to lead to disaster at some point. And finally, from the Financial Times, the top men's tennis tour is holding talks with Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund about possible co-investments as the kingdom's oil-funded capital continues to reshape sports. The head of the ATP tour said that he held positive discussions with the Public Investment Fund and other potential investors to back various sports projects and ventures, including infrastructure, technology investment, and events in new markets, speaking just weeks after the U.S. PGA Tour ended its resistance and reached a deal to work with the PIF, which took the golf world by complete surprise. The ATP head warning that outside investors must stick to respecting the history of the sport and the product, working with the current stakeholder rather than against. Here we go again. (laughs) Yeah, it appears here that tennis is trying to be careful Uh, seeing all the pushback golf got, but that Saudi money certainly looking attractive to tennis here. And you could say possibly Saudi Arabia now considered slightly less toxic, given that they've invested in some major European soccer teams, uh, golf. And so tennis is like, maybe it's time for us to get into the mix here. We should note that the ATP does not control the four Grand Slams of the most high-profile tournaments, Wimbledon, the French Open, U.S. Open, Australian Open. And so while the disunity of tennis's governance does make it ripe here for the Saudis to get involved, remember, they launched Live as a competitor to the PGA, the logistical issues of staging a tennis event are pretty complex here. So you see a negotiation happening early on here between the Saudis and the ATP. When it comes to money, the ATP Tour has increased player prize money in recent years. The bonus pools and prize money are up to $218 million this year. That's up from $180 million last year, the largest ever increase. But really chump change to the Saudis, Jill, you might remember in Live Golf, they were paying some golfers individually that amount of money. And in this case, you have just about $200 million being the entire prize money uh, for the ATP. It's interesting because, you know, Jill, we mentioned in last week's podcast about uh, Michael Jordan's huge investment in basketball, selling the team, and how, you know, he made more with that selling of the Charlotte franchise than he ever made as a player. It does come as private equity groups, sovereign wealth funds have been pouring tons of money into sports recently, as investors are recognizing that the sports sector is an asset class in its own right. All right, Jill, now time for On This Day in History on this June 26th. The UN Charter was formally signed today, June 26, 1945 in San Francisco, established after World War II, an attempt to maintain international peace and security. Their hope was for it to be more successful than the League of Nations, which, of course, failed pretty quickly between World War I and World War II. Uh, we could have a whole separate podcast at some point, and maybe we should, about whether the UN today uh, is still fulfilling its mission in any way, shape, or form, as envisioned 78 years ago today. No comment. <laughs> There's a lot we could go into there. All right, 60 years ago today, you might have seen this famous speech. June 26, 1963, President John F. Kennedy visiting West Berlin, declaring solidarity with the city's residents as they face the threat from the Soviet Union, declaring, Ich bin ein Berliner. The intention there, I am a Berliner. He apparently should have said, Jill, I'm no expert in German, but my understanding is he should have said, Ich bin Berliner, uh, because Ich bin ein Berliner apparently is a type of donut. So he said, <laughs> I am a Berliner donut. But the message. Nonetheless, <laughs> they got, got it. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. They they got that he was trying to express solidarity and not saying he was a donut. I am a Krispy Kreme. Mm. <laughs> Jill, when giving major speeches in a foreign language, always double check your translations. All right. On this day, 49 years ago, June 26, 1974, a supermarket in Troy, Ohio, sold a 10-pack of Juicy Fruit Gum. It became the first product ever to be scanned and processed using a universal product code, a UPC barcode. We take those for granted now, but just about 50 years ago, they were not commonplace. The goal at the grocery store, the goal uh, across the industry was to make checkout more efficient. They felt it like they were losing business because of how long it took to uh, buy groceries, items, uh, items in stores. Apparently, there were a bunch of protests from a, for a variety of reasons from companies. Eventually, the UPC symbol was adopted. It was decades in the making. As for why a pack of gum was the first item scanned, the shopper that day, allegedly, Jill, thought that the uh, UPC wouldn't work because the pack of gum was so small. So effectively, they were testing it. And they're like, let's start with the smallest thing in my cart. All right, we end here with a bit of pop culture. 46 years ago tonight, 1977, the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, will perform in public for the last time. The concert takes place in Indianapolis, Indiana. Presley would die six weeks later of a heart attack, which many believe was brought on by his drug abuse, his years of drug abuse. Presley was only 42 years old. And finally, on this day, 26 years ago, 1997, the first ever Harry Potter novel, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone by J.K. Rowling, was published in the U.K. Those of you who are Harry Potter fans, in the U.S., the book was released under the title Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the first of the eight Harry Potter books. I never got into them. Did you? I did not either, Jill. I feel like because we were already in high school when they started to come out, uh, among and and by the way, I won't speak for everybody. There are people of all ages who are Harry Potter fans around the world, clearly. Uh, but I feel like I never quite got into it because I felt a little bit old for them at that point. I feel like those are fighting words, Mosh. Like, I feel like Jill, you're I actually going to get hate mail. My email, my email <laughs> is podcast at mo.news. Feel free to send me the hate messages. No, I, I recognize the popularity. I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar brand industry, Harry Potter. But I just have to say, I never quite got into it. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's some point i want to do that during covid i tried to make a point of watching all the star wars films you know the original trilogy the pre-trilogy the post-trilogy i feel like at some point i i owe it to all of you to actually try to read a few of the harry potter novels maybe i'll do it for one of my book club picks maybe our kids will be into it someday Jill, <laughs> or we'll that just, or we'll, we'll wait 10 that. years um all right on that note a big thank you to everybody for listening to the mo news podcast Mosh, great to have you back i know you only missed a day but uh we missed you uh follow us everybody and subscribe so you don't miss an episode review us in the app store so we can continue to grow and a quick reminder for all of you who joined us we so appreciate everyone who joined mo news premium over the weekend it's a way to support what we're doing on this account uh support our 24 7 coverage whether it's uh titanic submersibles attempted coups in russia or whatever else is happening in the world uh your support uh helps out a lot by joining mo news premium you get access to our members only instagram account our members only podcast where we take more of your questions answer your questions directly give you more behind the scenes content so you can do that all over at mo.news slash premium so grateful again for everyone's support all right bye everybody have a great day Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.